This is Resident Call Room, the Hippo EM Emergency Medicine Residence Podcast, with your hosts, Jess Mason and Jenny Farah. Thanks for tuning in again, everyone. It is October 2015. Gosh, we're, we're just shut, like coming along in our residency here. The months are just flying. Yeah, intern years flying by like At nothing. At least that's what I tell myself. In fact... <laughs> I'm realizing that whenever someone asks me about something, I speak in terms of how much time I have left and not how much time I've accomplished because how much time (laughs) I have left is better. Like for example, right now I'm in the surgical ICU, which has been very emotionally traumatizing. And so I always speak about it in in terms of like how much time I have left. And everyone's like, wow, you've just started. I go, no, but I have to keep thinking like this is going to end soon. (laughs) (laughs) So it's going well then. It's just, you know what it is? I forgot what it's like to work with surgeons all day. Like I feel like this was a part of my med school life that I very conveniently like just, just deleted from my memory altogether. Yeah, it's so different as a med student because, you know, the interns, the residents, they're all doing things that look important and you can just be like, okay, you got that. I'm going to go read. And then you can just kind of slowly back away and disappear into a call room. And they can't do that anymore. They loved it when we walked away. I think they just, they love sending me to the library to do some miscellaneous tasks. And really, it's just the energy is different. When you're like rounding with surgeons, it's just a different energy and it's it's just not as upbeat. I mean, yeah. I smile and immediately feel guilty about it and stop smiling. Like, this is like... <laughs> and the other day, I stopped into one of my patients' rooms. As we were around it, I kind of poked my head in and was like, hey, how you doing? Feeling better? And then one of my residents was like, you know, while you were in there socializing, we decided to do this. And I was like, my apologies. Whoa. I know. It's like, I get a little excited when we finally have a patient who isn't intubated and can actually talk to me. Like, sorry if I got excited <laughs> and decided to have a conversation. Wow. It's very hierarchical. Yeah, it's so different than EM, where I think a lot of us are on first name basis with most of our attendings. It's very relaxed. We're, we're joking around. When I was on, I was on a step down unit last month. It was the MICU step down. And we were joking around with uh, with the senior residents there, and they're like, "Yeah, it's so weird when we rotate in the ED. You guys are all calling each other by your first names, and some of you have nicknames for each other. <laughs> like, what is this level of friendship? Like, yeah, what it's just is a different this? vibe? <laughs> just yeah, it, the, yeah. sometimes I feel like these out so. of um, you know off service rotations are meant to serve as a nice confirmation that we chose the right field. So that's how I'm treating this right now. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm on trauma right now. So I am working with probably the same group of people that you're working with, except the thing here at Metro is that this is the only level one trauma center in a really big geographic region. And everyone flocks in from miles and miles to do their trauma rotation here. So we have we have EM residents from really all over Northeast Ohio, from Akron, from of course from Metro, from University Hospital, from Massillon, which is a DO program all the surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic and at UH and all these different programs, they all come here. And so you take this like hierarchical structure and a kind of tense environment and then you throw people together who have never met each other, who are all from different programs. And it's like, okay, I'm just gonna like hold it together and survive this rotation. I still think Ohio just filled with so many nice people. You all should just get along and sing a medley together. I I have a hard time (laughs) believing you guys couldn't get along, but I can understand so many hands on deck, it can get difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a lot of characters yeah. down there. So let's let's so. dive deep, which I think is a wonderful way to open up this uh, this month's talk. Let's dive deep oh God, into Jenny. our topic of the month, which is invasive exams. 
I love the word invasive. It just mm-hmm. sounds like oh, you're like we're violating every personal space. We, we are. are. We are. But necessary we exams. We basically are. Necessary. The exam of orifices. <laughs> when we're not talking about the nose or the mouth. Um, so we wanted to cover for you um, basically questions we have. I, I wanted to know uh, more about when I really need to do a digital rectal exam because it's not my favorite exam to do. By the same token, we thought we would... Uh, pursue an interview about um, pelvic exams and genital exams and kids, which is what Jenny did her Yeah, so overall, kind of just because when me and Jessica were thinking about topics for shows, we we definitely spent a lot of time talking just about how, why is it that we always seem to hesitate on moving forward with like a rectal or a pelvic or just a general genital exam with patients uh, when we're, you know, in the ED. Like, for example, we'd never hesitate on listening to the heart and lungs or pressing on someone's belly and then going talking to our attending. But we always seem to kind of put a little stop sign at whether we'll do a pelvic and wait till we talk to our attending, right? Sometimes with the secret hope that the attending will call off the exam and say, ah, oh, no, we don't need to do a pelvic. We're not thinking it's anything, you know. We don't, we're not thinking PID or anything like that. So... But why is it? Why do, we, why do we put that red flag up for ourselves when we're in a patient's room and kind of wait uh, versus other exams? So we kind of wanted to just explore this more and speak to some experts about when they before, perform these exams, when they feel it's indicated, and any tips on how to make uh, what's usually a very uncomfortable experience for both provider and patient <laughs> and uh, yeah. how we can make it better. Yeah, it, that's a good point, Jenny. I don't know if it's just really uncomfortable for us it's obviously uncomfortable for the patient and then the combination of the two like no one really wants to do it unless you have to do it so so yeah let's delve deep into this issue and explore it further i spoke with dr tom lukens who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine here at metro health and uh, we talked about the digital rectal exam and when it's really indicated so let's take a listen i'm here with tom lukens and he is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Metro Health Medical Center through Case Western Reserve. And he's agreed to talk to me today about the topic of digital rectal exams. So thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me about this. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. It's kind of a touchy subject, no pun intended, but um, it's not like everyone necessarily wants to do DREs, at least I don't. And so my big question, and I think a lot of residents Um, out there would benefit from hearing some advice about when do we really need to do a DRE? When is it going to change management? When I was a resident, that was a standard part of the abdominal exam. If you had anybody with abdominal pain, they had to have a rectal exam. Years ago, I started to question this because I didn't like to do the exam either. I thought it was a rather invasive test, and most patients don't like the test per se. So does it really give you any information that is going to change things? And uh, I think one of the the seminal papers was back in the early 90s by Dixon, who looked at patients with presumed appendicitis. These are all patients referred from primary practitioners in England because of this right lower quadrant pain to rule out or rule in appendicitis. And he did an an interesting study in which he took all these patients and had the examiner document before they did the exam whether they felt this patient had appendicitis. Then they went ahead and then did the digital rectal exam. And lo and behold, it didn't change the uh, management at all in any of these patients. So I, I read that years ago, and I sort of started looking at this topic and, and uh, seeing what other people have written about. And, and, and in general, it shows that this exam really doesn't give you much information at all in evaluating people with abdominal pain. You've heard the old joke, what do you need in order to do a DRE? 
a medical student. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, so. that's a lot of the times uh, you get that, and so the information you get is probably even more skewed at that point. It's definitely taught in school, and it's for some, maybe some of the older attendings, it was definitely pushed as an important part of just the physical exam overall. So good thing for Dr. Dixon for starting to put us in the direction of not necessarily having to do that for every single patient. So that focused on appendicitis patients, but what about just in general? What about abdominal pain? Or, you know, kind of point me in a direction here of when it may actually be useful. Well, I think there certainly are times when it is useful, and I think anybody that has any rectal complaints, i.e., you know, hemorrhoids or rectal pain, it's probably worthwhile to do the exam to see just what uh, is going on at that point. But for undifferentiated abdominal pain, there's been several studies uh, that have shown that it just doesn't make any, any difference. It doesn't change management and doesn't lead to any uh, new information. Now, clearly, if, uh, they've even looked at uh, whether um, a rectal exam looking for a cold blood is worthwhile. And that's been shown that actually a passed stool is just as good for uh, picking up blood as a rectal exam. In fact, some people feel the microtrauma from rectal exam can take a ne heme negative person and make them heme positive if they have some rectal pathology that you, you know, cause some microtrauma to, which may confound your uh, you know, exam of, the, of this or decision making about this patient. So like you said, if someone has any rectal complaint or if they say that they've had blood in their stool, then then, uh, and they can't produce a stool sample, then that, would, that seems to be an indication. And then anytime um, someone has any neurologic complaint and cauda equina is on the differential, so those two for sure I'm thinking, but I'm trying to think of other reasons of why, why it would be necessary. Well, the, in trauma, they, um, a rectal exam is to, uh, if someone has a pelvic trauma, to see if their the prostate is high riding, whether there's any lacerations in the... Um, rectal canal from the trauma, that sort of thing. But uh, other studies have shown that even that's not all that necessary. Um, that uh, in some cases, however, with uh, perineal blood or, you know, edema of the labia or scrotum or uh, in the male of the scrotum, maybe you would want to do a rectal exam in that, in that instance to see if, in fact, the prostate uh, is high rotting and maybe you shouldn't be putting a, uh, you know, a Foley in that patient. Mm -hmm. So there are still, I think, isolated indications for uh, using the rectal exam. It's a little dicier in kids, too. I mean, that's, it's already an invasive exam, and it's not something I want to put a kid through unless I feel like I have a good reason to. Does anything change from your perspective when it comes to kids? No, and in fact, the series of uh, rule out appendicitis in children is, is in the literature showing again that this doesn't make any difference to do the rectal exam. That's that 3% were positive right-sided tenderness, but 2% people who did not have appendicitis, in fact, also had the right-sided tenderness. So it can actually lead you the wrong way by doing the exam. Mm -hmm. And I think clearly in kids, there's just really isn't any indication anymore for mm -hmm. a rectal exam, for, you know, for abdominal pain or appendicitis rule out. If I'm looking for occult blood and the patient has a bowel movement and I can go and visualize it and I can see red, does that get me off the hook? I don't have to uh, do that, it? Um, no, it doesn't get off your hook entirely because other things can turn the stool red. So you, <laughs> so you still should yeah. uh, check a guaiac, but it's clearly uh, been shown that just a, a stool sample is, is just as good as the rectal exam uh, for determining whether there's blood in the stool. Okay. And then we already kind of touched a little bit on trauma. So a trauma patient that comes in, and let's say, um, you already said if you're suspicious for a, a pelvic fracture, then that person's getting um, a, a rectal exam. Or if there's a suspicion for um, a spinal cord injury, they're gonna get one. Is there any other 
trauma patient who it seems like just part of the protocol, you know, turn them over and then. Right, and that, it is part of the protocol, just like it used to be part of the protocol for just the abdominal exam. You had to have a rectal exam. No, I can't really think of any other indications. Certainly, sometimes you want to know about uh, perineal sensation. You want to know about rectal tone, whether they can squeeze, and that's a you know, that's a, a good thing to do a rectal exam for because it helps you determine the uh, the, uh, the sensation as well as the motor function there. But uh, but after that, and if you uh, you know if you ruled out pelvic trauma in a patient, then there's probably no reason to do the exam in trauma. I mean, it's just an, an uncomfortable exam. It's invasive, and I think the the bottom line is that I think a rectal exam really should only be done as a test. And if this test can make a change in management, then it's a test that should be done. But uh, just to do it uh, as routine or because that's the way you were taught is is not a good reason anymore to do a rectal exam. So if it changes management, then do a rectal exam. If it doesn't change management, then don't. Thanks so much, Dr. Lukens. I appreciate it. You mean all those FOBTs I did were done in vain? (laughs) They were for your benefit. The, we always joke in county that we're like, we're in county, uh, you know, USC County is a DRE center of excellence. So we're, we're very <laughs> proud of that at county. But uh, he brought up a lot of good points, you know, just in terms of, you know, the, the stool sample can also be uh, totally fine. But I think the only concern with waiting for a stool sample is, you know, time. You know, sometimes it's just easier to go in, do the stool guayac versus waiting for them to pass the stool than using that, you know? Yeah, it's true. So um, And also arguably not any more pleasant for us than doing the DRE. That's <laughs> true. It's, but it, he brought up a good point, especially in terms of like appendicitis management and kids. It's, it's not always going to change management. You know, if they're telling you they've seen dark black stools or they've, you know, they're have, maybe they, they reported history of throwing up blood. So, you know, they have a GI bleed. And so naturally it's going to show up in a stool guayac. Like, is it really going to change anything for you? So I basically yeah. what I'm trying to say is I like what he said because it got me off the hook. <laughs> I I was really fishing for those things that would get us off. (laughs) All right. So that was very helpful. And then um, I guess in the same vein, did you already use that expression? No, that is not not something I say in the same same vein. vein. I feel like we use that expression a lot. I'm just trying to think of a transition. On the same note, which is what I'm going to say. I spoke with Dr. Claudius at the fabulous USC um, to talk about pelvic exams and kind of by extension genital exams, but mostly pelvic since that's obviously more invasive. And because she's a pediatric emergency specialist, we spoke about when she, these exams might be indicated in pediatric patients since that kind of just adds another layer of uh, apprehension and feeling uncomfortable. Um, so I picked her brain a little bit about when she feels these exams are indicated and some tips for how to make them a little uh, a better experience for both us and the patients involved. So let's take a listen to my interview with Dr. Claudius. All right, and we are here with the fabulous Dr. Claudius. Dr. Claudius, why don't you say hello to all our residents? Hey, thank you for having me. So I am an associate professor here at LA County, USC. I trained at UCLA, and I've been here for, I think, about three years now. Fantastic. And then, of course, you have a very busy personal life with three kids of your own. I do, (laughs) I do. They give me a lot of material for MRAP and things to share with the residents. Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned that. So for our listeners, um, the name Dr. Claudius might sound familiar since you are a regular contributor to MRAP and now HIPPO-EM. So we're so excited that now you can be a part of the uh, new resident call room website um, and our podcast for residents. And since you are such a pediatric expert, uh, we thought you'd be a perfect person to talk about in regards to some of the more sensitive exams, most notably the genital and then by extension of that the pelvic exam for females. 
So what I would love to know is what are your indications for, for both a, a girl and a boy for when you would perform these exams? That's a great question. And I think it's a little bit of a difficult question because I am going to say two diametrically opposed things. The first being that this is something that is very rarely indicated in terms of something we need to need to need to do in the emergency department. On the other hand, because it's rarely a necessity and it's something that nobody really ever wants to do, it's very easy to avoid doing it throughout residency, to feel very uncomfortable with the exam, and then find yourself one, three, ten years out of training really not comfortable when a girl comes in and there is an abnormality, assessing that and treating it and doing the exam. So on one hand, I would say you should look at the pediatric, and by that I mean prepubescent female genitalia, absolutely every chance that you get, within reason, <laughs> in the medical environment, not outside you of it, to the not online. Like, drop them right now. I need to learn. This is a learning institution. <laughs> but it looks really different than the adult right, genitalia, right. and you're not going to know what's abnormal unless you look at normal. So if a girl comes in and she has blood in the diaper, scant vaginal discharge, sounds like she has symptoms of a UTI. Those are all situations where it would be very reasonable to look at the genitalia. And you'll look at it often enough that when somebody comes in with a question of abuse or somebody comes in with a question of trauma, you'll feel very comfortable saying, hey, I've seen normal 20 times and I can decide what's abnormal and I can proceed with treating that. So that's something that's easy to explain to the parents. If it's an infant that's coming in for a URI, I'm not necessarily saying do it there. But whenever you have the opportunity, certainly take a look. It looks very different, and it's not something that we tend to see on a routine basis. In terms of when you are required to do it in the emergency department, there aren't a lot of indications. Very frequently, we have parents come in who disclose that their child was perhaps abused a month, two years, five years ago. Right, right. If you want to look in the emergency department and you feel like that would be a good experience for you and it would be reassuring for the parents if you told them that it was normal, absolutely, go ahead and do that. That's very appropriate. On the other hand, you're really under no obligation. They're beyond the point of evidence collection. They're beyond the point of requiring any urgent treatment. And you're not going to find trauma from two years ago that you're going to do anything about right now. So indications, if somebody has been abused within the last 72 to 96 hours, it depends on what state you're in, mm -hmm. that is an indication for potential evidence collection. And in those cases, you are going to have to look unless you have a child abuse expert that can look for you. The other big indication is going to be straddle injuries. So if a girl's had a straddle injury and there's some bleeding or something there, obviously you're going to be called upon to look urgently and make sure that there isn't trauma that requires an intervention at that point. Those are obviously really the two major indications. Clearly, if a child comes in with specific vaginal complaints, vaginal bleeding, itching, rash, obviously it would be appropriate to look just like you would look on an adult woman or right. if that was a rash on any other part of their body. Okay, and let's say um, you are concerned about these, uh, perhaps a straddle injury, and, and she's a young girl, maybe she's six years old. Uh, what are the things you're looking for on the external genital exam? Do you feel the need to use the speculum if you think the trauma might have gone deeper? Walk us through that scenario. Let me first start with addressing the speculum issue. So in the prepubescent child, it is basically never indicated for us to do a speculum exam in the emergency department. It's very, very uncomfortable, 
and it's obviously very distressful for the patient. And typically, if you're doing a speculum exam, it's because you're highly suspicious that there's deeper trauma. And I don't know about you, but if I find a huge laceration way up in somebody's vaginal vault near their cervix, I don't think I'm remotely qualified to actually fix that problem. So I would have done an exam unnecessarily and caused her a great deal of pain. So when I'm doing an exam on a prepubescent child, I'm doing an external exam, and what I'm looking for, like you alluded to, foreign bodies is a reasonable indication, and that would typically present as foul-smelling, maybe blood-tinged discharge. I'm looking for evidence of bleeding from a source that I can't identify, so maybe there's trauma higher up, or I'm looking for obvious evidence of trauma higher up. And if I do an external exam and I identify one of those things, then that is a child who needs a speculum exam, but it needs to be done under anesthesia. And quite frankly, it probably needs to be done by somebody other than me. In terms of the general approach to the exam, let me start by talking about sort of the different positions to examine the child in and what that's going to yield for you. So there's two main positions that are described for the prepubescent female genital exam. The first one is the one that I feel like I've seen more often in textbooks, but I actually think it's indicated to use more rarely. Mm -hmm. And that's the knee to chest position. And so for that, what you do is you put the child prone, you ask them to actually sort of get in a position as if they were crawling, and then you have them drop their head down onto their arms. So they're almost in sort of that yoga pose, the child's pose, but with their tushy up just a little bit. Okay. And that gives you really good visualization. It's a slightly better position probably to identify a foreign body. And if you're having trouble seeing the entirety of the hymen or the entirety of the genitalia for an abuse exam, it may give you a little bit better visualization. That having been said, if you don't do a lot of these exams, I wouldn't recommend it. It's not the position that we're typically looking at the genitalia in. So everything's a little upside down, it's a little backwards, it makes it just a little harder to do. And the other thing is, I feel like when a child is in an emergency department being examined, they are terrified no matter what you say or do that right. you're going to pull a needle out of your pocket <laughs> and start stabbing them at any moment. Mm-hmm. I tend to use that to my advantage. If I want to see if a kid has good extraocular movements, I walk around the room because I know they'll watch me. If I want to see if a kid has good neck mobility, I move around the room because I know that they will move their neck to watch me because they are terrified of what I'm going to do next. That's a great tip. Exactly, but in that position, I feel like when I have tried it, it's worked against me because the kid is not facing me. They're prone facing the other direction. And in my experience, even a cooperative child keeps turning around to try to see me, and it makes my exam almost impossible because they're constantly moving, and however I move, they constantly move to follow me. So child abuse specialists will tend to do that exam. I don't usually like to do it in that position unless I really, really need to for visualization purposes. The other position I think is something that we're much more comfortable with because it's very similar to the lithotomy position in which we examine adult women. Mm -hmm. So the position that I like to use, the kid is either lying supine on the exam table or if they're a little bit uncomfortable, they can be on the exam table but sort of leaning on their parents or in their parents' lap. Mm -hmm. And then you have them put their heels together and just sort of let their knees drop to the side and it's called the frog leg position. And that's sort of the anatomy in the manner that we're used to looking at it. And that's what I tend to use. When you read about this in textbooks, it often suggests that you do it on the parent's lap. And so I have tried on occasion, if the kid was very skittish about the exam, to have them sit on their parent's lap on a chair and do it that way Mm -hmm. instead of the exam table. Every single time I've done that, I personally have been sorry. I've had a lot of trouble seeing what I need to see. 
But that having been said, if that's the only way you can get the exam and all you're really trying to get is a quick glimpse to make sure that there isn't major evidence of trauma, I think it's reasonable to do it that way as well. But yes, whether they're on their parent's lap or on a chair on the exam table, yes, you want to have the entire child on the table or the chair with their ankles together and their knees falling to the side. Great tips, excellent tips, and in reserving maybe the the prone position you had spoken about um, as your first example, maybe for the more seasoned uh, examiner or someone who's more comfortable with that position, or if it's a child who will cooperate with being in that position, maybe a little bit on the older end and won't be tracking you and making it difficult to visualize. But you feel like you've had success with having them in the alternative position on um, on their back with the frog leg, uh, as you described, that has yielded success for you, for helping you out. Absolutely, and you brought up, I think, two really, really important points there. If it's an older child, a nine or a 10-year-old, then often I'll ask them which position they prefer to be examined in, and that's totally fine with me, and usually they've preferred the exam in the supine position. The second thing is, you mentioned if the child's cooperative, and what I've found is that if a child's cooperative, they're going to be cooperative pretty much in whatever position. Mm -hmm. If they're not cooperative, they're not going to be cooperative, and I've tried switching positions, thinking maybe this will make them more cooperative, it'll make them less anxious. If a kid is kicking and screaming, and they literally do not have blood pouring out of their vaginal orifice, then just defer the exam. It's not going to happen. It's going to be really, really difficult. Maybe if you really need to get a quick look, you can sort of have the parents help you take a quick look, but you're not going to get an exam that's worth anything. You're going to traumatize the child. You're going to traumatize yourself. If you're in that situation and you cannot talk them through it and there's nothing you or mom or whoever the caregiver is with the child can say or do to distract them or make them comfortable with the exam, you're not going to get a good exam and see if you have a child abuse specialist that you can refer them to in the next few days. One other thing though that I want to talk about briefly is just sort of what you are looking for because if you don't have a kid to look at and you don't do this routinely, it is a very unique experience to do your first pediatric female genitalia exam in a prepubescent child. So once you have the child in the appropriate position, you are going to need to give yourself a little bit better visualization. And what's recommended is that you actually grasp the labia and sort of pull them out toward you. And that'll give you a very good view of the vaginal vestibule. Mm -hmm. And you can see if there's any evidence of a foreign body above that would lead you to do an exam under anesthesia. You can see if there's any bleeding. You can see if there's any evidence of trauma. In addition, it'll allow you to take a good look at the hymen. And the hymen is kind of an interesting thing that from a historic perspective I think for many years when you look back at like masterpiece theater shows everybody thought was this sort of solid impenetrable thing that the first time like an internal chastity belt exactly rip through the doors or something I remember growing up thinking that because my parents would have masterpiece theater on all the time and they're like you know we're doing the virgin check to see if her hymen's intact and I was sort of floored when I realized that wait a second it's not this intact non-intact thing an intact hymen is actually an perforate hymen requiring surgery when you start to have your periods. It's actually a medical condition. So typically, the child's hymen can be of a lot of different morphology. It might be septated, it might be oval, it might be round. There's a lot of different normal manifestations of what the hymen is going to look like. But it should be you should be able to sort of retract it and see it open a little bit and see the contours. Mm -hmm. Typically, we say that it opens about one millimeter per year of life. That's not set in stone. If you have a three-year-old and it's opening five millimeters, you're not going to call DCFS and say this child's being abused. But when you're looking at it, that's kind of what you should see happening. 
and you're really looking for bruising, clefts, tears, discharge, or any evidence of trauma, bruising, lacerations on the labia around or on the inner thighs, bite marks, things like that when you're doing a sexual abuse exam. And typically, if you just kind of take the labia between your fingers and pull them gently towards you, that'll give you enough visualization to identify deeper problems that are gonna require more care and to find any manifestations. Another thing that's important to realize is that a normal exam is actually the norm when children have been abused. Yes, if you're incredibly lucky, you may find something that will support the child's disclosure. You might find some bruising, you might find a laceration, right. you might find something like herpes, none of which are definitive evidence of abuse in and of themselves, but there's something that you would want to record and certainly are suspicious for something nefarious having happened. That having been said, if you see a normal exam, it absolutely does not rule out abuse. And in discussing things with the parents, they always want to know what you found. And if you did see a normal exam, it's great to be able to reassure them, the exam is normal, I don't see any tears. Your child is not gonna know from the appearance of her genitalia that something has happened to her. Nonetheless, she's telling me something that right. has happened, and certainly that's not mine to be the judge and jury for, but I want to believe her and I want to pursue this. And just having a normal exam absolutely does not rule out child abuse. And it doesn't mean that we are calling her a liar. It doesn't mean that we're not going to take this further. But it is reassuring that she hasn't been damaged. So that was a fabulous Dr. Claudia. She's so great. That was a really good interview, Jenny. And she's so helpful. Um, some of the things that I thought were really important from that interview. Residency really is the time for doing things that we're not going to be doing as commonly in practice outside of training. And so while there are certain exams like this that are not always um, commonly indicated, it's important that we do them. So I thought that was really important. So that we know what normal looks yeah. like. Because like she said, you know, genitalia, especially in the prepubescent population, has a lot of different variations. And how are you going to know abnormal unless you've seen normal? Yeah. That was a really good point that she made. And by extension with this discussion is a discussion of trauma. And when you perhaps think abuse might be playing into the picture and how that changes yeah, your exam yeah. as well. I mean, residency really is the time to push ourselves to do the things that are kind of uncomfortable and make us feel uncomfortable because we don't want to always feel uncomfortable with that. And it's a really tough topic, not just uh, sexual abuse in children, but it is a sensitive exam, and if there was, like you said, a straddle injury, um, that's something that, you know, it's our job to be the ones who are comfortable with assessing it, um, even though it is very uncomfortable for us, too. So I, I, I don't know. It sounds like it's different out in California, but out here, we actually don't do the sexual assault exams ourselves. We have nurses who are especially certified in this. They're sexual assault nurse examiners, so we call them SANE nurses, and they're the ones who actually do the evidence collection. I'm not sure. Is that how it is it in uh, California? USC has um, a special violence intervention program uh, that will come to the bedside when you are suspecting these issues, but the actual exam could very well be performed by the MD. So we don't, ha as far as I know, we don't have the nurse specialists that you're speaking of, but we do have a special team of people that could come um, and help evaluate the situation in addition to your medical exam okay. as the provider. Okay. Um, what I uh, also wanted to comment is that uh, the, the interview I have with Dr. Claus is actually quite extensive and we'll probably be uploading uh, some extended audio versions of that for our listeners because we also had a great discussion as well about just how children in general respond to these exams. And one of the great pieces of advice that she gave in that discussion was that for a lot of children, they actually are able to handle 
um, you know, understanding what you're doing. If you talk to mom and patient at the bedside and explain, I'm going to do this exam, you know, only mommy and doctor and maybe grandma, whoever is caring for the child, they're the only ones allowed to kind of go near these parts of your body. They actually have really good understanding of that. Because one of my concerns is always, will this child understand what's going on? Am I causing them further emotional trauma, you know, and all these other things. And she was actually quite reassuring in that she felt uh, contrary to what I was thinking that most children can't grasp what's happening in a way that makes sense to them and they understand that you're there to help them and not hurt them especially if you're being uh very mindful of putting them in positions of comfort for them and uh just taking your time and not in and being very careful about how you move forward with the exam and then so that was reassuring to hear another thing you had mentioned in the interview which unfortunately had to get edited out for the time being um was you also don't want to overplay the whole thing and over dramatize it and build it up as if it's some big deal and uh, rather you should just kind of make it like this is a, a normal part of the exam it's okay for a doctor to do like you said and you know not blow it out of proportion because you don't want to set the kid up to overreact to it and, and they'll, they'll usually cope with it better if you just like move along with it like now the next part of the exam is this so here's what we're going to do anyway that was great right in, in in regards to the positions that she was talking about the two positions this would be something that i would encourage everyone just kind of google like pediatric pelvic exam it's also in tintinelli's they have like actual diagrams that kind of help outline if it was hard to grasp the different positions she was talking about um they're actually they're a little odd to look at when i when i first before i even interviewed her i'd done some research on this issue and i saw the pictures and i'm like this looks bizarre but the way she describes it makes it sound so okay yeah <laughs> so i think maybe in practice yoga and yeah. <laughs> frog leg. <laughs> but those are great descriptions. Yeah, she did a really good job. Right. I feel like I could picture it in my mind just hearing her description. Another thing that I thought was really important that she mentioned is that a normal exam does not mean there was no abuse. Right. Uh, that's really important to remember. Awesome. So two great interviews about two very sensitive topics and sensitive exams. And I feel like it was a, it was a great overview of just things, you know, when you use it, will it change your management and the best way to go about doing it. Okay, so that was a, a very helpful, very academic feeling month. It felt very serious as well. And we wanna throw something fun at you this month. And so we have a really cool um, case of the month to cover. And um, so this one comes from one of the senior residents here at Metro Health. His name's Hans Steck. And Hans. I'm gonna let Hans. Very Nordic, I love it. I know, I know, he <laughs> is such a cool guy. And uh, this is just such a great case. I'm gonna let him do all the description for it, but you're, you're gonna wanna hear this. So, so let's listen to what Hans has to say. Uh, so we had an interesting uh, case happen at the Cleveland Clinic Emergency Department uh, several weeks ago. We had a patient that came in that was found in her car unresponsive. Uh, she came in pulseless and CPR was initiated. We were able to get a pulse back, however, she then developed tension pneumothorax physiology uh, and needle decompression was done on her left hemithorax um, with uh, normalization of her vitals. Uh, after that, she then uh, lost her pulse again and we uh, subsequently thought we needed to place a chest tube. This lady had, uh, was rather obese lady and had large amounts of subcutaneous fat and tissue. Uh, therefore, placing the chest tube was rather diff difficult due to the copious amounts of fat we had to go through to get to her uh, thoracic anatomy. Uh, therefore, uh, it was a t thoracostomy was attempted, but uh, unfortunately, due to the physical limitations caused by her obesity, we were unable to uh, get a tube passed into the tract we had made with our finger. Um, 
I came up with the idea that maybe we uh, could make the one the tube a little bit more rigid and uh, a little bit more thin at the tip by having a bougie inserted into the thoracostomy tube. We then used the bougie in a somewhat modified Seldinger technique to pass the bougie along my finger into the thoracic cavity and then uh, used the bougie as a guide to pass the chest tube into the thoracic cavity with success. Um, the chest tube was in sutured in a normal fashion and the lady uh, ended up, we ended up with good vitals and she ended, ended up in the ICU and as far as I know has made it out of the ICU. Bougie in the chest. That's a rock star move. I, I know. like it. I love I love all the I love the different code words we have for obese. A copious amount of soft tissue. Right. A rather large body habitus. <laughs> the adipose it's like, is rather <laughs> thick and dense. <laughs> I love that story. I think it's so creative and he totally just under he's so modest. He like underplays how freaking like cool. So that was there was. any like really I cool. so he guides it in with so. his finger? And you know, usually you poke through with your finger to know you've entered into that pleural space. So was the bougie advancing farther than his finger? Mm -hmm. He like he brought the bougie in with his finger and was hoping that that would give him some more uh, like tension to break through. Is that kind of how it works? So from my understanding, he made the track with his finger and Okay. Once he got, it sounded like once he got into the, the plural space, he was probably just barely there and it was probably hard to hold that in place uh -huh. and get your tube ready. And so it sounded like he took the bougie and followed his finger down I in and, and got it into the plural space from there. That is just so creative. I love it. Good job, Hans. Way to go, Hans. Way to go, Hans. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right. Um, so let's get to the news now. Medicine. World News. In ASAP News, this came out uh, September 11th, 2013, and this is an article, The Career Report, The Job Market for Emergency Physicians, and it's by Barb Katz. She writes a lot for ASAP News. And um, she, it's, this is interesting. So she, she first covers how many programs, how many residency programs there are currently. And it's way more than I thought for EM. Do you have any, do you want to venture a guess, Jenny? How many emergency programs are in the U.S., emergency residencies? Yeah. I would yeah, say. Yeah, total, allopathic and DO. I would say, oh, DO, I have no idea about DO. But I think for allopathic, it would be like maybe 150? Not bad. 150, Not ba and then I have no idea for DO, to tell you the truth. Jenny, it's like you looked at this. There's 149. I am amazing. <laughs> I, you know what, I would be so good on The Price is Right. Yeah, I'm you would so be so good at guesstimating numbers and outbidding and like doing the. Some guy says eighteen hundred, I say eighteen oh one. I love that. I love when people block them. Did and you then, always you know. win the jelly beans when you had to guess how many were in the jar? Yes, yes. Anyway, so one hundred and fifty <laughs> or one forty nine. Okay, so there, there are a total of two hundred residency programs. One hundred and forty nine are allopathic, um, and osteopath. There are forty six. And then for the three-year programs, it's, a, it's really heavily weighted towards the three-year programs. I didn't realize that 114 of the allopathic programs are three years, and only 35 of the allopathic programs are four-year programs. Really? Only 35? Um, I feel like when I was on the interview trial, I only saw fours, but maybe because I was looking at county programs, they tend to be the four yeah, years, I guess. I'm not sure That's why so that funny. is. I okay. felt the same, too. I've mostly had four-year programs that I looked at. Um, Okay, so that's a lot of programs, and um, that's been growing recently. And then she compares that to the current job market in emergency medicine. And she says, again, this year, this is gonna be a highly competitive 
market with fewer jobs, but this is only true in the highly desirable lifestyle locations. When you talk about the rural, and she calls them the less popular lifestyle regions, then you're not... <laughs> what, the less popular lifestyle... What kind of lifestyle yeah. are you talking about? Like alternative <laughs> lifestyles? Like what's... Okay, keep going. Keep going. I'll stop interrupting. Anyway, okay. so, so the basically the job market's not as tight there. There's a lot more opportunities, probably a lot better offers coming from those regions. There's an increasing number of emergency medicine jobs that are being extended to primary care trained physicians. Um, it reached an all-time high this last year of 35%. And so I think that really probably speaks to the need in some of these more rural areas, these less desirable areas, um, when you can't fill those positions by EM boarded doctors, then they're, they're looking to primary care to fill them. Um, and it's also mainly the national contract groups that are playing a huge role in, uh, in filling these jobs. So we're all moving to the middle of nowhere to become employed, <laughs> You saying. can, you will make more money and the cost of living will probably be cheaper. So <clears throat> let's see, she kind of breaks it down by region and by state. I'm not gonna go into all the details of that, but you can definitely find it on the ASAP News website. And this one's called Characterization of the Council of Emergency Medicine Residency Directors Standardized Letter of recommendation in 2011 to 2012. I love these really long titles for names of I research know, papers. I know, I know. Very descriptive and also not at all. It, they might as well just put yes. the entire paper in the title. Um, okay, but anyway, <laughs> I don't want to make fun of them. This is a really interesting article. So this one looks at basically it's looking at the slore that we all have to get as these slores when we're applying for residency. It's it hadn't been evaluated since it originally came out, and so they're looking at it as a as a tool for you know how useful is this and how standardized is it for evaluating applicants. So the the slur first hit the scene in 1997. I love slur. It sounds like the trail of goo, goo like goo that a slur. Yeah, goes I know. I kind of think of a slaw. The slur. I don't know. Anyway. So the standardized letter of recommendation that all emergency medicine programs want, um, it's our standardized way of giving recommendations for applicants for residency. So what they did for this article is they looked at three programs and they looked at the 2011 to 2012 um, application season um, and they kind of analyzed all these responses, both to the numerical responses and the free text responses. In total, there was over 1,000 um, letters of recommendation. Only 70% of these were by EM physicians, which is very interesting. That I, I would have thought it would have been more than that, because um, I thought that's those were the only people who wrote them, but that apparently isn't true. And um, of the letters of recommendation, only 58% were even slores. So taking from that pool, uh, here's the interesting part. Um, they're asked to evaluate you and put you into certain categories. Um, so one of the questions it, it asks, essentially, would you rate this person in the top 10% of applicants? And 40% of the time, they ranked applicants in the top 10%. So it doesn't mean already, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I know. Um, and then, then one of the other questions is, um, would you rank this applicant above the level of their peers? And 83% of the time, they're ranked above the level of their peers. So statistically, that doesn't make any sense either. And then, um, and then another question is, um, would you rank them in the top third compared to their peers? And they they said this was true greater than 95% of the time. <laughs> so what you're saying is the standardized template for evaluating people is in no way specific and not accurate at all. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this makes sense. Who's going to ask someone for a letter of recommendation when you don't think that they're going to give you a stellar letter? Um, I mean, apparently it happens sometimes. It's difficult. But... It's difficult. 
it's difficult to do this. Like, and you say, okay, let's get rid of the slower and just have everyone write letters, but that's not going to help either. It's, it's just, it's, it's the nature of the beast, I think, in terms of how you're really going to measure up applicants from across the country to each other coming from different places, you know? Like, I can't think of a better way to do yeah, it. Yeah, there's no perfect tool, and so it's all a work in progress. But it's good to look back and analyze these things and, and ask ourselves, is this really accomplishing what we're, what its intention is? So and apparently yeah. Well, not, as an applicant, really, though, I, so. I I love the inflation. I love I love the recommendation inflation <laughs> that's happening. I'll I'll rock that for as long as I can if they're going to keep it. <laughs> we'll see. So that wraps up. Um, we're going to leave it at that since we ran a little long this month. Um. Emergency medicine. World news. Trying to keep these episodes like 30 to 45 minutes for y'all so uh, it fits the, the average attention span for a short attention span ER people, or as I like to it's call the, us, it's EDADD. EDADD. <laughs> All right, folks, so thanks for listening. And what do we decide is our catchphrase? Educate and resuscitate? We don't we have, have one. I like it. I'm rocking it. We're, I'm doing uh, Educate and Resuscitate. You're either going to hop on this bandwagon or you're not. It's going to happen, though. It's coming out of my mouth <laughs> at the end of every show. All right, folks. Educate. Continue. Please continue to educate and resuscitate. You're getting there, yes. You're getting it. <laughs> Go pay off your loads. <laughs>